Welcome to Pip Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with rebels, visionaries, mystics, outliers, change makers, and people I find interesting. I am your host, Pip. Today, we are talking with Ebony C. Peace. Ebony is a spiritual entrepreneur and lay community minister with two ministries, Sunstone Chapel and Innovative Spirit. She is a lifelong Unitarian Universalist from Silver Spring, Maryland. She holds a BA in Sociology from Sweetbriar College, an MS in Strategic Human Resources and Organization Development from John Hopkins University, and a Master's of Arts in Leadership Studies, MALS, from Meadville Lombard Theological School. She completed her seminary internship at All Souls Church Unitarian in Washington, D.C., where she focused on adult spiritual development, social justice, and worship arts. She has a professional background as a clinical sociologist, practicing in human resources, training, facilitation, and career consulting. Ebony is an adjunct instructor, having taught college and graduate courses in business, general education, and sociology at three colleges. In her spare time, she enjoys writing poetry and stories. Her poems have been published in the 2021 In Spirit Anthology and in Blue Notes, an anthology of love, justice, and liberation by Skinner House Books. Ebony is the 2022 winner of the Charles Billings Prize for Excellence in Preaching from Needville Lombard Theological School and a recipient of the Marjorie Bowens Wheatley Scholarship from the Unitarian Universalist Women's Federation. Hi, Ebony. Hey, Pip. <laughs> to start off with, what is a spiritual entrepreneur? Oh, so um, a spiritual entrepreneur, at least by my definition, is someone who is focused on, um, on spiritual business pursuits. So a lot of times we think about uh, nonprofit organizations, particularly religious institutions. Um, in practice, you know, they are, they are nonprofit. Um, and the thing that separates spiritual entrepreneurship is that um, I am, or I consider spiritual entrepreneurs, they're for profit, but they still have that really deliberate um, spiritual and faith-based aspect to their business. So they are in business for a purpose that's very clearly spiritual, um, very clearly um, ethical and to the greater good, um, but it is for profit. Um, and I do think that um, uh, we can and should pursue all things that are good, whether they're for profit or not. Um, and as a spiritual entrepreneur, um, I think that there's some flexibilities that come with that, um, that nonprofit organizations don't have actually. Um, spiritual entrepreneurs can talk about their faith and their beliefs um, and uh, in politics as well mm. um, without any kind of repercussions. If you are a nonprofit church, you can't talk politics. Um, you have to focus on issues. Right. Um, and there's other limitations. You're always, you know, trying to to raise money Um and whereas with spiritual entrepreneurship, you can raise money without ask, asking people to give it away. You can actually provide services that 
give them a benefit and you can earn money. And so that also provides more flexibility with what spiritual entrepreneurs are able to do. Um, and uh, they don't always have to be at the mercy of people who are voluntarily giving up their money um, and their time. Um, as a spiritual entrepreneur, I can actually hire people um, because it's a for-profit kind of thing um, and not have to worry about some of the things that uh, some nonprofits have to worry about. So there's pros and cons to both. Um, but for me, my personality and uh, what I you know, aspire to do, spiritual entrepreneurship was a really good fit for me. So some may have some other definitions of spiritual entrepreneur, but um, that's the one that, that I abide by. <laughs> okay, that's very interesting and very thorough answer. Um, you said that you felt like it was a good fit for you. I, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I have been um, very much into doing my own thing and having my own business and and being able to follow my own path since as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, even in high school, <laughs> I had little little businesses and things, little hustles, you know. Um, I always enjoyed the creative aspect of it. Um, I always felt comfortable as a leader. Um, and uh, I just really liked to kind of have my own direction and create new things. Um, and so I was providing services in high school, doing different things um, for as, pretty much, yeah, as long as I can remember. I think it really started in high school. And um, I've, I've owned and co-owned uh, multiple businesses as well. So um, in my adulthood, um, as I focused more on, on my businesses actually being successful, because many entrepreneurs, you know, we start, we fail, we get back up. Um, as I started to really solidify my work and what I do um, in my faith as well, I really wanted to combine them together and really have a deliberately faith-based business where I can live into my values at work um, and not have to split so much of my time, you know, volunteering for free to do good, but I can actually connect it with my employment and do all the great things I want to do, but actually be compensated for it instead of stretching myself too thin. Okay. I'm curious, how do you feel that you've been accepted? You know, I know that you're a community minister is is sort of one of the ways to define yourself. Um, Do you feel like you've been accepted by the Unitarian Universalist clergy community as being an entrepreneur? I know that sometimes it's been a new thing for people. Um, I can definitely say that it's not the norm. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the norm. There's not too many of us uh, spiritual entrepreneurs out there. Um, And and I identify as a lay community minister, uh, which is different from a community minister. Okay. Um, And uh, I'm a member of the UU Society for Community Ministers. And we have different designations that mean specific things. And so I try to be clear about that for the most part. Um, In terms of acceptance, um, you know, in general, I would say yes. Um, I've come to experience that um, uh, ordained clergy, non-ordained, those in fellowship, those not in fellowship, um, lay leaders, everyone, there's a sense that um, leadership is needed 
and leadership is wanted at all levels, at all levels. Um, we won't be successful with all we're trying to do um, in Unitarian Universalism if, if we only have uh, clergy, if we only have lay leaders. We really need to have this collaborative leadership going on. Um, and so that's where I see it. And so I would say overall, yes. Um, and, and I also give kudos to the UU Society of Community Ministries for creating that connection, um, for having that space for people like me who are doing, who have ministries, but we are not necessarily all ministers. Some of us are, some of us aren't, um, but there's this really beautiful space of community and colleagues where um, we, we actually have a place for those who are similar to like me. So I'd say yes, um, but also at the same time, um, because there's not that many uh, spiritual entrepreneurs, um, some folks don't know what to do with that. What is that and how does that work? So, um, so I would say that yes, accepted, but is there a lot of awareness around it? Not so much so, not so much so. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. How did you get on this path? Hmm. It's a good question. Is when I was about, I wasn't quite five years old. Um, I was about four in some months. My father joined um, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Silver Spring. So I grew up um, as a Unitarian Universalist. Um, I grew up being very open-minded, um, open-hearted. Um, so I've always had that leaning there, but my family, the majority of my family were Christians. So um, my father and I were the lone UUs in our whole extended family. Um, so it, I would say it started as a child, just um, being really connected with the community. And I was very close to my father. So I think that's also another reason why he and I connected with Unitarian Universalism. Um, so as I grew up and um, you know, went to school and connected with other people. Um, I just um, always just felt a comfort with that. And um, after I had my children, that's when I really uh, doubled down on my faith-based participation and volunteering. Um, and, um, and then I realized that I enjoyed it so much and it was taking up a lot of my time. And it's so hard to say no, because there's so much to do. Um, I had so many gifts and skills that I thought would be an asset. And I was on the board and I was on this and that. And, and um, it was a lot. And, um, but I still needed to work. <laughs> you know, I still had to earn a living. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I teach others how to manage their careers. Um, and I do career consulting. And so I career consulted myself and said, hey, you know, how can we make this work? How can I, you know, because uh, I, I don't believe in work-life balance. I think that's, that's a myth. Um, I believe in work-life harmony. Um, and that's where some things take priority at some times. And in other times, something else is a lower priority. They're all important. So it's not harmony in terms of a balance that's an understanding of shifting priorities and, and a way of looking at things that's more realistic. So um, I just career counseled myself and said, you know, how can I do this work that I'm being called to um, and not be burned out and still earn a living and still be a, you know, a good mom and a good wife. And I have two parents who um, 
Um, my father had a stroke a few years ago and my mom has dementia and, and um, I do a lot of caretaking around their needs and their uh, whatnot. And so, um, so that's what I did. I, I went back to school. So I already had a master's at this time, but I went back to school. I went to seminary, um, got a master's of arts and leadership studies from Meadville Lombard. And then I went on about using that spiritual foundation, uh, uh, that theology to connect it to the work I was already doing in human resources and applied sociology and organizational development to just have that combination and then begin spiritual entrepreneurship in that way. So that's how we got started and that's where I am now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there's a lot of concepts in there. I'm, uh, I'm sort of taking notes furiously on top of the notes <laughs> that I had from your bio and, and I'm hoping that I can untangle sort of all my thoughts around this because um, there's a lot going on, like you're a busy person. Um, and I love the idea of work-life harmony and I, mm. I can totally see how that is an important concept and particularly with the pandemic with so many, you know, so many people who do work from home, particularly people who had office jobs, that kind of thing, you know, that finding that balance, I think is in some ways easier because we don't have to travel, um, but also in some ways harder because it, it can be harder to step away from work mm-hmm. um, when yeah. you need to attend to family things. Um, so your education, um, you got a couple, yeah, let me pull up your bio, sorry. Okay, so you have a BA in sociology, um, a MS in strategic human resources and organization development. Um, Curious about if you could tell me um, sort of what you feel like you got out of those, um, and we'll talk about the mouths in a minute, um, but the sociology and the strategic HR and organizational development. Um, I'd love to just have a brief recap of kind of what you learned there or why you got there. I, I fell in love with sociology when I was in high school. Um, my, my, both my parents um, always talked a lot about our place in the world and, and what's going on in the world and why and struggles and, and victories. And so I, I had been really just fascinated with how people operate in groups and society um, and wondering and asking and talking about it. And so I, I signed up for um, a couple of sociology classes uh, for the summertime when I was a senior in high school. And the summer school class actually started before my graduation. I was late for my high school graduation because I was coming from class. <laughs> and um, so I took my first sociology class at the University of Maryland, College Park. And uh, I just, I loved it. Um, and I knew pretty certain, you know, for the most part, that that's what I wanted to major in in college. So I got to college um, and I, I took some other classes. I was interested in international relations as well and philosophy and some other things, but sociology, it still stuck with me. And so I ended up majoring in sociology and I'm so glad I did. 
um, just that foundation in terms of understanding society, uh, socioeconomic status, race, religion, just everything. I think, and I'm very biased, but sociology is one of the most helpful um, foundations anyone can have. Um, I also, I teach college and um, mm -hmm. sociology classes is the bulk of what I teach. And I get students who are in the nursing program and the dental program and business program, and all of them are taking sociology as a foundational course. And I think it's just so helpful. It transfers to pretty much anything else you need to do. Um, I think it's so much more helpful than like psychology and other things that get more props, you know? Um, mm. So I just, I'm, I've always enjoyed sociology and it's, it's fun for me and really just fascinating. Um, and then when I went for my master's, um, I wanted to not just um, focus on sociological theory, but I really wanted to apply it. I always wanted to do something with what I knew. I didn't want to just twiddle my thumbs and talk fancy about it. I wanted to do. And so that's why I ended up getting my master's in, in um, strategic human resources and organizational development, because it was a way that I could apply sociology. Theology. So that's what I did. Um, I almost went to law school because I was very interested in applying sociology through law. Mm -hmm. um, but even now, with human resources, um, I really enjoy like employment law. So if I did go to law school, I would have focused on employment law, which is um, a part of human resources. Um, so I've always enjoyed um, applied sociology, uh, and, and I do identify as a clinical sociologist. Um, and that's someone who applies sociology to what they do from that sociological perspective is what we call it. Um, so I went to grad school right after college. So I finished college actually in three years. Hmm. Um, I, I took extra classes and I went to summer school every summer. Um, and so I was able to finish early. I went to, I also did a domestic exchange while I was in college. I went to Spelman college in Atlanta, Georgia for a semester as a domestic exchange. Um, went to American University and, and took, where I did an internship in law when I was at American University summer program. And then when I, I did internships in HR and in law, and I realized that I liked HR a bit better. So that's what I ended up, that helped me decide if I was gonna go to grad school through the HR route or the law route. But um, so yeah, and, and I just, fell into um, all things human resources. So I, I did that. I had my first HR job while I was in college. I was doing an internship during school. Um, so I started working pretty early um, and I've been in HR for over 18 years now um, and in career consulting too. Um, my college was very small, Sweetbriar College. At the time we had maybe like 700 students, 750. So very small wow. campus, a small student ratio rather, but the campus was huge. We had like 3000 acres. Um, and I would go to the Career Services Center to get help on my resume and career stuff. And many times I'd be the only person there, like me <laughs> and maybe one other person. So that meant, you know, I got a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention with the career service staff. So I learned a lot because I got like one-on-one -on -one, um, attention. I went to all their little classes. And so when I came back home on the holidays, my friends would say, oh, you know, I'm trying to get this internship or I'm trying to do this or that. And I'm like, oh, I know how to do that, <laughs> you know, because because um, I had taken all these classes and got one on one attention at my career services center. So then some of my friends who I helped, 
Like I would start to get calls from people I didn't know. And they're like, oh, so-and-so said you helped them get their internship or you helped them with their resume. And I was like, yeah, I did. But, you know, they gave you my number. (laughs) So um, people started coming to me for career stuff. And I was like, oh, I think I need to start charging for this. Uh (laughs) So that's how I got into uh, career coaching, um, which happened, you know, while I was in college. Uh, so yeah, finished college and then went to grad school at John Hopkins. And that was a really good experience. Um, and yeah, so I got those, those two degrees. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then you also got a master's of arts and leadership studies at Meadville Lombard. Um, and just a little bit of background on me, like I am currently in the dual degree program at Meadville. So I am almost done with completing my MDiv. And then I will have one year that I will spend on my mouse. Um, and actually there's a minister that I talked to about this and he was like, I don't know why you're getting a mouse. I don't even know what that is, you know? Um, oh no. <laughs> right. Right. And I didn't yeah. have a good answer for him. Like it seemed like good stuff to me, but like, I'd love to hear what you think about like what a mouse is and what's the point of one. That's the story of my life is, <laughs> is explaining to everyone. What is the mouse? You know, like when I was doing my seminary internship at all mm-hmm. souls in DC, like you know, people were like, what is that? You know, because that degree is very specific to Meadville Lombard. Um, If you look at other seminaries, um, all seminaries have an MDiv, and then they may have like a master's of arts in religion, Mm -hmm. and then they might have like something else. Um, Like there's another, uh, you know, the other UU seminary has a master's that focuses on like advocacy and social justice. And so it's when there's this other kind of masters like that, it's really um, for lay leaders um, and to really focus on leadership skills. Um, mm-hmm. So the mouse, it's really about um, faith grounded, justice seeking leadership with a focus on community based ministries uh, in a really diverse context, this multicultural world. Um, And it's really good for folks who plan to not just be in traditional parish settings. So leadership is leadership. But when you're doing leadership outside of a parish, outside of a traditional situation, you know, that focus on community ministry and being out there in the public is a different um, aspect of leadership than one that's just in the parish. Mm -hmm. And so... I knew going in, when I got my call to seminary, I knew that I was not going to be a parish minister. Like that was not what I was being called to do. I was being called to, to, um, to be a leader out in the community um, in a non-traditional setting. Um, and so that's why the Miles degree really appealed to me a lot. Um, and I think that people who are doing the dual program um, what you'll get is not just that traditional foundation, but you'll you'll also be able to be more nimble in non-traditional parish situations. You know, um, in in the um, UU Society for Community Ministries, mm-hmm. in that organization, we have um, folks who have um, a, a um, 
MDiv rather, um, and but they're doing community ministry, but um, you know they weren't able to be as nimble. Some of them, you know, because it the MDiv focuses primarily on parish leadership, um, but those who come from non-traditional masters or you know they had to really get that experience out in community ministry to really uh, catch on to things. I think so. I think it's good to do the dual degree program, and I also know that. Meadville is actually hiring right now for um, they're adding some faculty that's just focused on leadership and public theology, a, a practical theology, so applied. And I really think that's what the MALS is about. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, um, the MALS really provided me with that solid spiritual foundation that the work that I do is grounded in theology and justice seeking leadership that I can connect with the other degrees and the rest of my knowledge. Um, because I know that, you know, parish ministry is not necessarily for me. Um, our internship in the MALS program, it's nine months instead of like a couple of years. Um, there's not as much of a focus on pastoral care. Whereas if you're going to be in parish ministry, you totally, you really need to get that pastoral care in there. You know, those CPEs, that's really critical. Um, not so much so um, out and about, in community ministry. Um, it's it's important to be able to hold space, um, but the context is a little different. Sure. Yeah. My next question, I think you kind of partly answered. Um, I, I was curious about how you learned this nimbleness from the MALS degree when like in your case, your internship is actually in a parish, even though mm -hmm. parish ministry is not your focus. And you partly answered that in the sense that there's less of a focus on pastoral care, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, I'm curious how else it's sort of different from like an MDiv internship. Yeah, I think because we need leadership at all levels, the MALS degree is really good for lay leaders who want to lead within our faith. So for example, um, within the UUA, you know, there are people in administrative leadership positions um, on committees, whether they're paid or volunteering, um, who are applying their leadership skills. And to have a degree like um, MALS, you know, is an excellent foundation for folks who want to work in our faith-based communities, but not necessarily in a parish ministry, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm so glad that we have that um, degree. And, and I've got to say, the MALS, it's, it's, it was only one of the many options. So um, there's also, you could become a commission lay minister, which doesn't include like academic study. There's another uh, process for that, but it's another way that lay leaders can develop and grow their uh, spiritual leadership skills. Um, and there's some other pathways folks can take, but I love learning and I love the academic setting. So I knew that going back to school would be the better fit for me. Um, but in terms of my internship, um, it's funny. I know I mentioned pastoral care, uh, mm -hmm. but during my internship, I, I provided coverage for the person who primarily does pastoral care because I thought that I needed, you know, some more experience in it. Um, and, uh, and that was really helpful for me because I, I took one class that related to pastoral care in my MALS program, um, but I just felt for me, I needed a little more. And so I really appreciate that we have the internship 
as a part of our studies because I really got um, the extra I needed. Um, I was, and I'll tell you real quick, um, I had just done a worship service um, and it was on a really sensitive topic around a miscarriage. And um, after the service, we were all in a chat room, you know, a little coffee hour kind of thing. And um, I was the only staff member in the room. I was an intern. I just talked about, um, as I said, um, um, miscarriage. There were folks in the chat room, like full-blown tears, crying. Mm. Um, Someone had their camera off and they said, I'm too emotional. I can't have my camera on, but I can type in the chat. Like it was just an emotional ball of, of just all kinds of emotions. And I didn't feel... I can't say I didn't feel prepared. Like the class I took in pastoral care, that helped me enough that I was able to hold the space. You know, mm-hmm. I was able to hold the space and let folks feel, you know, heard and, and be able to, you know, provide what was needed. But inside my heart was racing. I'm like, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I had like um, maybe two tools for my toolbox and I used both of them and that was all I had. And I'm so lucky that, I'm very fortunate that those two tools I had, you know, was sufficient to hold that space. Um, but after that experience, I felt like I need to add some more tools in to my toolbox just in case, you know, because I want to be able to serve and I want to be ready for when those kind of things happen. Um, and so uh, I ended up talking with my teaching mentor in my internship to get some more opportunities to really learn some more tools for my toolkit. Um, So now I feel more well-rounded and some community ministers and lay community ministers may take um, some extra CPEs depending on what kind of work they want to do. But one thing that, that I appreciated about having my internship in a parish, even though I don't plan to, um, to be a parish minister, um, it doesn't mean that I may not I, I do actually want to do some work in parish ministries, you know, mm-hmm. so I don't plan to be a parish minister, but understanding how parishes work and function and the dynamics and the politics there um, is helpful for my work as a lay community minister. So um, I plan to, to do work out and about, but also still be able to offer some services to congregations. And so um, my internship was still really helpful. That's great. I would love to hear about Sunstone Chapel and Innovative (laughs) Spirit. Sure. So um, those are my two ministries. And um, Sunstone Chapel, I started that pretty much when I applied to seminary. So when I applied or right after I got accepted, sometime around there, I started Sunstone Chapel. And I felt like I had so much creative energy in me, creative spiritual energy. I needed an outlet for it. And so I just created it as a, as a way to just place the things that, that were in my heart and in my mind to create. So I started to um, record sermonettes and create uh, prayers and readings and things like that. And I just began to put them up there on Sunstone Chapel. And so after, so it's been two years. Um, so two years of that, um, I finally had a chance to, 
it's solidified itself. And so now it's not just my portfolio of things I've done. I actually provide um, services to congregations. So um, I call it liberal faith engagement offerings. So that pretty much means um, I do guest preaching. So guests in your pulpit um, and learning experiences targeted to staff. Um, so I do staff training and lay leadership development training um, and faith engagement classes for congregants. Um, and I do something called a spiritual enrichment residency. So it's a four week program where if someone's gonna be on sabbatical and maybe only got a sabbatical minister for uh, four months, but you need a fifth month, you can bring me in for four weeks. And, and I have colleagues that I work with and we'll provide sermons and spiritual enrichment, uh, lay leadership training and other things to enrich the congregation during that kind of sabbatical. It's like a supplement to sabbatical ministry. And then I have um, uh, the, I do some facilitation through Sunstone Chapel as well. So um, I'm about to be trained on Adult Owl um, in September. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, and I'm very familiar with um, the tapestry of faith and other um, adult spiritual development classes. I have my own signature classes that I've created as well. So um, I facilitate those done by the UUA or others. Um, and I'm a sacred facilitator, which is um, a faith-based organization that focuses on reproductive justice and teaching congregations how to um, live into those liberal faith values of autonomy and, and bodily justice. Um, so I've facilitated some of those sessions as well and, um, and work closely with that organization. And then I have um, a little online dinner chapel that is for free and I'm looking to do it once a month and that's where anyone can come and we will spend some time together in an online medium and just um, hold space with each other. Um, nourishment and reflection, um, just to help us kind of move forward throughout throughout our week and our lives. So that's Sunstone Chapel. Um, and what I'm doing with that is uh, folks who sign up to my email list, um, they'll be the first ones to know about any free um, adult spiritual development classes I offer as well. So I have one that's really popular on land acknowledgement. Um, so I'll probably be doing, offering that shortly. Um, and if people, you know, who, who participate in that for free, if they like it, I can bring that to their congregation as well. So it's really a win-win situation. Um, and so that's my first ministry. So there's those four kind of uh, offerings that come from there. Um, and then Innovative Spirit, that's my second ministry. Um, that is where I focus on HR consulting for small congregations. Um, so what I found is uh, a lot of times congregations don't have someone, you know, dedicated full-time to HR. You know, many times it's just, you know, one person, let's say the, the, the church administrator, uh, they have like 20 different jobs to do and HR may be one of them. Uh -huh. And with the pandemic, you know it, like so much has gone on with our people and and our people aren't being cared for. Um, and so there's a, there's a more significant need for better and improved HR support. And so that's what I'm offering 
um, I did a session at General Assembly around this topic, and it was it was pretty well attended. Um, and I'm getting emails from it still. I'm still responding to people who are like, oh, can you send me that tip sheet that you talked about? And they were really engaged in it. So through Innovative Spirit, I offer this HR consulting retainer, and it's affordable as well. And it's only, it could be just a couple hours a month so that congregations have the HR support they need to really be able to thrive. Um, and then I have um, an administrative leadership intensive and an HR intensive as well, where I actually provide training on administrative leadership issues um, and HR issues as well. And then the last but not least, uh, through Innovative Spirit, I offer spiritual career direction for individuals. So everything else is for um, the congregation, except for spiritual career direction, which is focused just on individuals who are looking to, you know, pretty much live into their calling, you know, stop being broke and, and upset about work and underpaid. Um, I really feel strongly about um, if we can get ourselves together as individuals, then we'll be better able to um, make the world a better place. You know, um, I, I keep thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, everyone's trying to, you know, just take care of their basic necessities. And while we're still at that bottom rung, you know, it's hard to focus on the larger picture, you know, systemic issues going on. And so that's one thing I try to accomplish through that spiritual career direction is to help people, um, you know, increase their income, be happier at work. And so they have the time and funds to be able to volunteer for causes that they really care about. Mm -hmm. So that's it in a nutshell, I would say. Okay. That's really powerful. That's, that's a lot of important work. Um, I think I'd like to dig into all of that a little bit more, but before that, I don't want to neglect talking about uh, your preaching prize and your uh, <laughs> scholarship. Yeah. I'd love to hear so, about those. Um, I'll start with the scholarship. Um, I got a scholarship from the UU Women's Federation and I was just so thrilled. Um, I shared with them, you had to apply for the scholarship. And so I shared with them what I was doing or trying to do with Stunstone Chapel and with Innovative Spirit. And they felt strongly that it was worthy holy work. Um, and mm. so they gave me a scholarship to help me to get those off the ground. And so when I applied for the scholarship, I had already started Sunstone Chapel, but that money really helped me to get Innovative Spirit off the ground. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful and fortunate that they even have a scholarship like that. Um, and it was focused for uh, women of color. Um, and so I feel really supported by our faith and by women um, in, in Unitarian Universalism for that. Mm -hmm. Um, in the, the preaching prize, oh my gosh, um, I'm still in a little bit of disbelief in some <laughs> ways because um, I, I saw that, you know, you had to apply for the prize, you had to submit a sermon, and so I, I wrote a sermon, I just wrote from my heart and my spirit, and I submitted it, and then I double-checked that it was received because I was anxious about it. And then I didn't know anything. They didn't tell me if I had it or not until they called my name <laughs> at graduation. Um, and, and as we got closer to graduation, I was like, are they ever going to, like, when are they going to say who, you know, who won that? 
Yeah. So it was a, I was so surprised and excited. Um, and I had worked hard on that sermon. I really um, gave it my 100% and um, it, with the goal of being helpful to those congregations who have the benefit of listening to it. Um, and so it felt really affirming. It still does. It feels really affirming to have won that after working so hard and honing my preaching skills um, and sermon creation, because it's not just about speaking it, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, what you say and why and connecting it to theology. And so that award-winning sermon is called mm -hmm. Unopened Gifts, The Call mm -hmm. to Live Into Our Calling. Um, and it's about 22 minutes, so it's not like a little short sermon, um, but I actually have it up and available at uh, Sunstone Chapel on my Vimeo channel. And the other week, um, Meadville Lombard, their communications manager, director, Tomo, she had asked me for um, the video, the sermon, and the written words. And so I provided that to her. Um, she wants to send it out to everyone. And so it's been just very rewarding. And I feel so good being able to share that with congregations who will benefit. And so I'm going on tour with that sermon. So um, I've spoken at um, one congregation already, and I have another this month, and then another next month. Um, next month, I'll be at Cedar Lane um, in Maryland speaking on um, the sermon. And so I'm open and happy to speak in anyone's pulpit <laughs> with this <laughs> sermon as I go on tour. So I um, would appreciate that invitation. Um, and the sermon focuses on um, economic injustice mm -hmm. and how we can live into our calling. And, and I talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, and how there's stress at work, stress with our career, and how living into our calling is holy. Mm -hmm. And we should uh, focus on that for our own self-care and the self-care of the world and that all of us have a calling not just us as individuals but our congregations have callings you know and many of our UU congregations are doing too much with our little budgets and you know small volunteer pool and so it talks about how we can um how we can leverage the eighth principle to change our structure so that we can live into our calling as congregations and live into our calling as individuals Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, the idea that everybody has a calling. Um, do you think you've always kind of had that perspective? I would say, I would say, um, I always knew that, that I had a purpose. Mm. I've always been very self-directed, but I didn't always call it a calling. Mm. You know, I've been very self-motivated. I always felt like I can do it and there's something I need and want to do, um, but I didn't always call it a calling. That came later. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm still forming. You know, my faith is still forming um, and I'm still learning and absorbing and reflecting on myself and, and my, my, my ministries and, and how I can, you know, best serve. Um, based on the skills I have and, and what the world needs from me. Um, and, and I also say, as a part of being a lay community minister, 
one thing that many of us do, whether we're lay or, 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 or not lay, is we tend to affiliate with a UU organization. And so that's something else I'm looking at now is now that I'm kind of, I'm graduated, I'm getting myself situated, I'm having a, a pull toward an urge to reach out and um, affiliate with um, whether it's a U congregation or a UU organization. Um, I've been, that's been on my mind lately. So um, I think that's probably the next phase of, of what I do. Okay. Um, so the next question, I, I, I really hope that I don't offend you with it. Um, but it's something that I'm very curious about. Um, okay, I'm getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, brace yourself. <laughs> yes, I'm bracing myself. Okay. So if everybody has a calling, um, then how, and uh, it'll take me a second to sort of complete the question, okay. but, um, how, how will society or, you know, the world continue to work in the sense that, you know, like, what if all of the garbage people, you know, garb, I don't, I don't know what the politically correct way to say, it, but, you know, garbage men and women and, and people, um, and like all the fast food workers and all the house cleaners and, you know, all the people who do the work that nobody really wants to do, but kind of needs to be done. Um, like what if all of those people, you know, said, okay, I have a calling to do this other thing and they quit their jobs and they, you know, pursue uh, work that feels meaning to them, meaningful to them and, you know, inspiring and enjoyable. Um, you know, like how would everything work? How can we ha have both that everybody has a calling, but also we, you know, we need to keep the machine of the world running sort of. Mm -hmm. The first thing that comes to my mind is um, trusting the universe, hmm. trusting the spirit um, and having that faith that when we answer our call, that we're doing so in conjunction with what the universe has for us. And when we go with the flow instead of against it, when we go with, with the natural order of what's meant to be, things fall into place. Hmm. You know, whether we see them now or not, things will fall into place in the, in the best way that they can be in a way that's better than we could have imagined for ourselves. Hmm. So I would trust the universe on that um, because I think that, our call is our purpose, what we've been put on the earth to do. It's a sacred thing. And when we do that, everything is better. You know, we enjoy our work. We enjoy each other. We're not so grouchy. You know, we get along. Things fall into place. Um, the other thing I would say is that our calling isn't always just a job or occupation. Okay. So if a, if a trash collector were to follow their call, um, their call may not have anything to do with a specific kind of job. Um, and in my understanding of call, it's still evolving, you know, but I feel like um, a call is more of 
something that we are, something that the universe has for us to do, our purpose. Um, but that is never like an occupation. For example, someone's an occupation might be to be a teacher, right? I don't think people's call says, oh, your call is to be a teacher. That person's call might actually be, their call may be to, to help children do whatever or, or something. And that purpose, if their purpose is to help children um, learn to read, just say their purpose is to help children learn to read. They could be a teacher, they could be a tutor, they can be, you know, there's different ways you can live into that call. It's not just one specific occupation, you know. Um, um, so I think there's more flexibility there. And um, and I, I feel like people's call tends to be about helping someone. Mm. You know, it's, it's some sort of helping someone helping a group of people do something. It's help is that key word and what our call is. And so if everyone is following their call to help in whatever way that is, whether it's helping children to read, helping congregations to live into their mission, um, helping people survive cancer, um, helping the earth heal itself, our calls are about helping and it respects that interconnectedness. That's what I believe it's really connected to. And so when we're all doing our part, when we're all helping each other, then the, you know, who's picking up the trash isn't a problem because that person who used to pick up the trash, they're doing their calling and someone else is going to find their calling, which may involve something to do with waste and trash, you know, it'll end up being someone else. Uh, but with everyone doing what their call is, everyone's happier doing all these things, you know, so at least that's how I imagine it now. Mm -hmm. okay. That's a good question. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It was, you know, it, it sort of tickles at my brain. Like when I hear people talking about calling and vocation and stuff like that, you know, because mm -hmm. I want everybody to be fulfilled with their lives, you know, and um, some of that might be that, you know, someone's calling is to work for greater justice for workers, you know, like better pay, fewer hours, um, so that people do have time to do something else outside of job. Um, or, you know, maybe it's, you know, robots can take care of the garbage. I don't know. <laughs> um, I really appreciate your, your sense of sort of expansiveness and uh, possibility and potential. Uh, it's very exciting. Um, so recently I went to a workshop uh, that you held uh, and it, it had to do with your work as career. You've used it a few different terms for sort of similar work. Um, you've said that you do career consulting, you do career coaching, you do spiritual career direction. Um, I, I'd love to hear about more about that work specifically and sort of like how it's evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I believe that workshop was um, self-care for your career. Yeah, I think um, so, it sounds yeah. right. Yeah, uh, helping your resume to stand out for results. Mm -hmm. um, so career consulting is the, the broad overall kind of thing. 
Um, and then within that is um, I have a spiritual career direction program that I do my career consulting through. And that program, I started it with thinking that 12 months would be good, um, but I've recently revamped the whole program. Um, I tightened up some things. Um, I found new ways to accelerate progress for those in the program. And so now it's actually a six month program um, and it's holistic. So from finding and confirming what your purpose is, to um, you know, shifting careers if need be, uh, resume, cover letters, interview skills, all of that. It's holistic. So by the time you get to the other end, you know, you've you're clear. You've got clarity about your career. You've got clarity around your purpose. Um, you're able to have a a job that you enjoy, um, or that's a step toward one that you really want. Um, and looking down the line to creating wealth, not just income, but wealth. And, hmm. and then using that new freedom you have to uh, be able to volunteer where you want and do other things with your time and not just live paycheck to paycheck um, for so long. So that's the, the, the program that I have um, in which I do career consulting through. Um, I still do some one-on-one -on -one career consulting, but the majority is through that program um, because I found that when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with clients with career consulting and spiritual career direction, uh, I'm saying the same thing often, okay. you know? Um, and it's like, if, if folks were in a group, I can just say it all to them at the same time and people learn from each other's questions. And so what I found after years, again, this has been over 18 years of, of um, career consulting, um, I found that people actually do better when they're in a group environment. They can learn from each other and, and hear the answers to questions that they may not have thought to ask for themselves. Um, my clients are more successful when they're in programs. Um, and so that's, and it helps to manage my time as well because it's not the only thing I do. So it's just a win-win for everyone. And so that's why um, I have that program. And through um, Innovative Spirit, um, I do um, regular free workshops um, and so that was just one. Um, and the, the two sessions I did through General Assembly, like those are examples of what um, other workshops may look like. And so um, I, I'm going to offer uh, multiple workshops uh, where people can just come in and learn and see if we connect well. And, and if they benefit from the workshop, then it's very easy to get them to move forward into one of the programs. And we have the uh, spiritual career direction program and also the HR program and then um, administrative leadership um, program as well. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. That sounds great. And I can see what you're saying about how uh, taking like an individual, single free workshop would kind of lead people to wanting to take, you know, the overall program. Um, I, I found it was a very valuable little bit of time that like, I learned a lot, not only about sort of the practical measures of how to enhance your career and your resume, um, but sort of about the attitude of, of yeah. the mm -hmm. way to go at it. Um, like I, I, I don't actually remember all the tips, but 
um, you sent us a recording, so I'm going to go back at some point. Um, <laughs> but, but one of them that was really interesting to me was like to bring a portfolio to your interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's something I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can totally see why it is a way to have kind of like the right attitude, a go-getting kind of uh, energy that you'd bring to the interview and a way of like kind of doing a little extra and a way that's not invasive, you know, cause mm-hmm. like sometimes people think to show that they're really enthusiastic about a job, they have to call and call and call and call. Um, and that could be too much. Um, or sometimes it's impossible to even follow up with an interviewer cause they don't give you that information. <laughs> you know, I had right. that mm-hmm. in situation recently. Um, but just, Briefly, um, we're almost out of time, but um, briefly to give our audience a sense of what I'm talking about, could you just describe very briefly that that portfolio that you talked about in the workshop? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of the little secret tricks (laughs) to really showcasing ourselves in a really positive light um, because the job market, it's just it can be a bit crazy and um, very competitive. And many times I'm helping, you know, my clients, you know, increase their salary. So they're applying to positions that are new to them um, and they're really wanting to stand out. And sometimes they may have less experience in that field than others who are applying because they're doing a job transition. So I'm always looking for ways to help give them the leg up, to help them to to get to where they want to be. And the career portfolio is one of them. And pretty much that is, um, if you have reference letters, um, if you have examples of your work that you've done, maybe brochures you've created, um, comments from customers that speak highly of you, um, a copy of your you know, resume, cover letter, certificates that you've earned, um, anything that's going to support everything that you said during the interview. Because the interview, they're asking you questions, you're answering questions, you're seeing if you're a good fit, but all that is talk. What the portfolio does is that helps to show, it proves that what you just said, you know, is indeed fact. It helps to prove that, you know, these aren't just hollow words. Here's evidence of what I've done. Here's evidence of what people have said about me and my work. And it really makes things stronger. So, What I do is um, reference letters I have and those other things I mentioned, um, I would have them on my computer. And when it's time to interview, I'd print them out. I'd go to Office Depot and get some color copies, get it bound. And then I put my resume in there uh, along with my cover letter as well. So they have everything. And then I ask, how many people am I interviewing with? And so I may bring extra copies of my resumes for those extra people but there's only one portfolio and it's copies of everything. So I can leave it with the hiring manager. And what happens is after um, the interview is done, the hiring manager goes back and they're looking at all resumes. And then when they get to you, you have more than a resume, you've got this portfolio. And so they're flipping through that. And so just off the bat, visually, psychologically, when they see this packet of stuff that you have versus these couple of pages everyone else has it automatically you know, makes you, you know, it it can make things go in your favor. And when the content of that portfolio is really strong as well, I think I said a story of how 
Um, I was applying, it was a federal job. They never even called my references because I had so many reference letters in my career portfolio that had, you know, here's the name and phone number. Like they didn't even call them for real. They just read the letters and like, whoa, you know? And so the easier you can make it for a hiring manager to hire you, you know, the better because they're busy too. So you make it easy to prove that you've done everything that you've done. And so, but that portfolio, it doesn't come up overnight. You have to, you know, as things come about, um, you build it. And whenever you leave a job, you ask for a reference. Um, and, and I have a secret for reference letters. One of the things I shared in that uh, workshop is you draft them up yourself. You draft it. And then um, when you ask someone to be a reference for you, you say, hey, um, could you do a reference letter for me? Uh, would you mind if I draft it? And many times they're more likely to say yes because you're doing the bulk of the work for them. Um, all of my reference letters, uh, they let me draft them except I had one supervisor who wanted to do it all themselves and that was fine. Um, and then when I drafted the hiring manager who was my supervisor, they would tweak it. And I had a couple who didn't tweak it at all. They're like, oh yeah, this is, accurate. And then that's that. So um, be sure to, to have your reference letters because the final thing I'll mention that I talked about in that workshop is, you know, people pass away, people forget you. <laughs> so um, it's better to have a written reference than just a phone number. And phone numbers can change, emails can change. So make sure you get their personal phone number, their personal email, but an actual reference letter is what's most important. I love career management, so I can talk about that all day. <laughs> and I know you said our time is up, but but I just, the feeling I get from helping people with their career, it just, it fulfills me um, in just this way that it's so hard for me to describe. Um, people's lives change when they go from being underpaid to being able to save money and go on vacation and not have to worry about things. Um, people's lives change when they're, they go from a job that they literally, you know, felt sick going to every day to a job that they enjoy. It's just a life-changing thing. And um, for, you know, since I got out of college, just that call to help people in that way, um, it's just something that I've, I've tried to get away from it a little bit just because I've been so busy with things, but I always come back to it. I, I feel like that is one of my purposes. Um, to help people change their lives by focusing on their career, which we're, we're at work, you know, 40 plus hours a week. So if you can make positive changes with your career, like that is life-changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I love everything that you've said today. Uh, you bring a wide variety of experience that all, you know, kind of shares common themes. Um, I would describe you as a visionary. Um, and so for the final question, um, is I'd love to hear as brief or as long as you'd like, uh, what is your vision of the world that we are building? Hmm. One thing that, that pains my heart a lot is the economic injustice. Hmm. I feel that, um, you know, starting with, with slavery, um, it was all for economic greed. You know, the people who were enslaved, they could have actually been any race. Um, it wasn't about race. It was about um, power and money. And, and then we get racism and um, other oppressions come after that economic justice. So economic injustice is this umbrella and all these symptoms come under it. And so when I think about a world where there's peace and there's love, 
Um, that is a world that has economic justice where people's basic needs are met, where people, where, where it's not a luxury just to be able to self-actualize, where it's not a luxury to be able to, to live into your calling because now um, it, it's a luxury to do that, to be able to afford to even consider um, whatever your calling may or may not be, to, to think beyond the day-to-day -day stress is a luxury for many people. And I think that is, that's very, it's very sad. Um, so my vision would be a world where we have equity and equality at work, uh, where people are not being taken for granted, where we take care of our people and we're taking care of ourselves. Um, and I think a lot of that does start with, um, with economic justice. I love that. Great vision. Thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. It has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for um, having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, take care. All right. Thanks, Pip. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us again another day on Pip Talk. <laughs>